Welcome to a new episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host Vicky isn't able to join us today. Still, I'm lucky to be talking with an old colleague, Terry Taminen, a salty polymath who is head of California EPA, a chief policy advisor to former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, as well as a climate advisor to President Barack Obama, the UN, and others. Terry's also an author, ship's captain, founder of several nonprofits, and a strong advocate for healthy seas, going back to his youth on his family's tropical fish breeding farm in Australia. Today, Terry's president and CEO of Alta Sea in the Port of Los Angeles. Alta Sea is a public-private ocean institute, kind of breeding colony that commingles sustainable ocean startup companies with blue groups involved in ocean exploration, science, and education. But before we get into Alta Sea, Terry, I have to ask you about your first connections to the ocean, and particularly that Australian fish farm. <laughs> well, David, it's a great pleasure to be reconnected and to talk about our mutual love uh, for the ocean and for its protection and the fact that it really is that part of the world that is going to save us if we treat it properly. Uh, I think I've been called many things, but never a salty advocate. I like that. Um, so yeah, I, I uh, when I was 12 years old, my family was living here in California. They gave me as a birthday present, a gift certificate to scuba duba dive. Uh, and I learned uh, scuba diving off uh, the coast here of California. And I was just mesmerized by the ocean. I actually grew up in Wisconsin, about as far from the ocean as you can get before we moved to California and was a fan of the original black and white TV series, Sea Hunt. And I think that plus Jacques Cousteau are the two things that made me interested in the ocean. And then of course, getting wet, getting salty was the thing that uh, that sealed the deal. And so then my whole life, I have uh, been in and around the ocean, sailing and diving and snorkeling and, and now trying to protect it. So yeah, Sea Hunt, uh, Lloyd Bridges' underwater investigator, Mike Nelson, that was before the Cousteau specials and uh, I think inspired a whole cohort I certainly became a diver and a private investigator in large measure because of that. But did we get the bio wrong? Were you not uh, in Australia at some point in your youth? Right. Uh, in fact, right after I got that first diving certificate at the age of 12, at the age of 13, my family moved to Australia. And that's where I went to high school and then had some early career activities uh, to make money to come back to California to go to Cal State Northridge and, and go to college. So came back here. I still want to know about the tropical fish rearing in Australia. Well, and that was the thing where my dad, uh, one of the reasons that he wanted to move to Australia, he had been a tropical fish hobbyist in the U.S. and was always fascinated by the breeding and selling of them and realized that in Australia in those days, it was pretty easy to start a business and particularly in tropical fish sourcing and breeding and uh, shipping all over the world. So uh, he started company called Yankee Traders uh, in uh, Brisbane, Australia. Nice. And uh, But then, yes, I did study various uh, things uh, with uh, marine biology, and particularly in uh, uh, 1993, started the Santa Monica Baykeeper, uh, part of the originally one of the first seven water keepers in the world. There's now over 300. But uh, one of my things to do there was not only to stop polluters, to use the law and science to stop polluters, but to be able to tell people, well, if we could stop the pollution, if we could stop harming the ocean, would the ecosystem come back? So we took out volunteer divers and started replanting kelp 
in the Santa Monica Bay and off Palos Verdes here uh, nearby so that we could replenish the ocean forest. So you really uh, evolved or, or moved into climate policy and were you know, seen as a progressive and environmentalist and somehow ended up as chief advisor to a Republican governor here in California. How did you get connected with or did Arnold Schwarzenegger connect with you? Well, I am indeed a flamethrowing environmentalist and a Democrat and had raised money for Al Gore and and uh, lots of other progressives and progressive causes over the years. But I knew Bobby Kennedy because of his work with the Waterkeeper Alliance. And, uh, and so when Arnold decided to run for governor and he told the Kennedy family, he said, look, uh, one of the things I want to do is is try to restore California's environment. I mean, people didn't see him as an environmentalist. They just saw him as an action hero who drove a Hummer and smoked cigars and blew things up in the movies. But in fact, uh, he came here in 1968 from Austria thinking that Southern California in particular was the land of of, uh, perfectly tanned bodies and beautiful beaches and snow-capped mountains. And instead he found trash on the beaches and air so thick you couldn't breathe it some days. And and other environmental impacts. And so he always wanted to do something about that, gave money to environmental causes throughout his career. But then one of his policy motivations to be governor was to work on the environment. So Bobby said to him, well, look, you you need a policy advisor to tell you how to use government to make those changes that you want to see, Arnold. Go talk to this Terry Tamanen guy. So Arnold and I hit it off and I wrote a, an environmental action plan for him to campaign on, much to the chagrin of my Democratic friends who said, why are you helping a Republican? And I said, well, don't we want a Republican? Remember, this is in the days of the Bush administration. Don't we want a Republican saying what we are on the environment? Um, and by the way, don't worry, Arnold's not going to win the election. We'll just use all of this later because Gray Davis was the governor theoretically being recalled. We'll use this to make him a better environmentalist. And uh, well, lo and behold, Arnold wins the election. And the day after I went into his office and said, well, congratulations, governor. You have no idea what you've bitten off, but at least you have a great environmental action plan to implement. And he said, no, I don't. You do. And at that point, you put up or shut up. So I accepted the position of California Environmental Protection Agency secretary. And uh, we implemented that whole plan uh, on renewables, on marine protected areas on protecting land and and, uh, other habitats and so forth, and our Global Warming Solutions Act. And then he kind of liked the way I laid out plans and implemented them for an agency and said, you know, I need a cabinet secretary to do that for the whole government. So I became his cabinet secretary and ran the whole government for a while. And this was a significant period in terms of making California a leader in uh, ocean and climate action. And, uh, you know, it's it's you're you're looking for solutions that grow faster than the problems. And when you have a a state that's forty million people and the world's fourth largest economy, uh, what happens in California does make a difference. So that gave you a platform to uh, promote other climate platforms. Well, yes, obviously, I got some notoriety for writing policies that could be implemented, and they actually worked. I mean, for example, our million solar roofs initiative. 10 years later, uh, it was former Governor Schwarzenegger at that point, and at the time, current Governor Jerry Brown, the three of us went to a high school in the Central Valley of California to celebrate the millionth solar roof under that program. And the statistic that jumped out at me was not only in those 10 years did we incentivize a million uh, rooftops to be covered with solar, 
But the price of installed solar came down 75% because, as you point out, we're such a big economy that when we do things, the scale helps mass production and competition among installers and so forth, which brings the price down and innovation that makes the systems uh, cheaper, faster, better, cheaper. But the other statistic that jumped out at me was that we estimated these million solar roofs would generate about three gigawatts of power and a just for scale, a, a gigawatt is kind of the amount of energy put out by a nuclear power plant. And in fact, they generated 8.9, almost nine gigawatts. So three times as much as we estimated. So a huge success by any measure. So we knew that the right kinds of policies and incentives on all of these different topics could work. And so uh, I was approached by advisors to candidate Barack Obama, and we had some meetings on particularly his energy and climate policy. And I will mention one thing that's very related to the ocean. He said to me, I assume because you're from California that you're against offshore oil drilling. And I said to him, well, this may surprise you, but no, I'm not. And I'll tell you why. Because we drive our living room on wheels to the 7-Eleven to get a quart of milk uh, polluting along the way. And we stop at the gas station and fill up and we say, well, our coastline is safe. But meanwhile, the gasoline that got us on that little journey comes from Ecuador or Nigeria or other places where they don't have environmental protections and where people are dying every day so that we can have our fossil fuel joyride. So I think what we need is a plan to get off of oil 100%, whether that takes 10 years or 50 years, but a credible plan to make that transition. And in the meantime, we should accept those responsibilities. By the way, some jobs and economic development come with it. But as long as we're using these fuels, we should be accepting the responsibility and then hopefully Im imposing much stronger environmental protections than other countries would. So uh, so anyway, he was quite surprised by that. But uh, unfortunately, we never got the plan uh, to ultimately get us off of oil. What we got was more oil drilling all over the world. So there, there is this moment now where wind and solar is cheaper than uh, fossil fuels. We have an administration that's uh, moving forward on, on ocean and climate protection. And you've moved forward too. You're now uh, CEO and president of something called Alta Sea in the Port of LA, which is the largest in combination with the Port of Long Beach, the largest port complex in the Western Hemisphere. So uh, brief update how you got here and, and what you're doing now. Well, yes. So uh, so after leaving government, uh, I advised lots of different candidates and, and governments on climate policy um, through nonprofits in particular and traveled the world trying to help uh, states and provinces in particular uh, to uh, to develop climate policies like California's. And, and we learned from others, not just California, and uh, and then work with a lot of investors and investment funds, including the UN Green Climate Fund, on helping to finance this transition because it's not enough to have a plan. You have to know where's the technology coming from and how are you going to finance it, especially in developing countries. So uh, that led me to Leonardo DiCaprio, for example, whose foundation was small and he wanted to grow it and make it more impactful, which we did. Uh, other philanthropists and, and again, governments and, and even companies. I helped Walmart in the early days of their sustainability journey, try to get on the right track and do some really important things. Uh, and then about a year and a half ago, I uh, was given the opportunity to 
be the CEO of Alta C in the Port of Los Angeles, which is a nonprofit that was given a 35-acre campus in the port um, of historic 100-year-old warehouses. Um, and the nonprofit was essentially given it by the port as long as we raise the money to renovate it into a modern blue economy education, workforce training, and business incubator. So we now have done that or are in the process of, of the remodeling. But in the meantime, we've already got uh, researchers from the University of Southern California. They have a kelp lab. So as I mentioned earlier, I used to plant kelp uh, from my baykeeper boat. Now I get to grow it in a lab and extract uh, food and fuel and pharmaceuticals. I mean, I don't do it, obviously, but uh, the researchers do. And then they commercialize those in our our hub, our business hub. And we have researchers from UCLA extracting carbon from seawater. Many of your listeners may have heard of extracting carbon from air, direct air capture, but it's that's not very efficient or cost-effective. Uh, extracting carbon from seawater actually is. And the byproduct is green hydrogen, which is something you can use to help decarbonize shipping and ports and goods movement, which desperately needs to be moving away from fossil fuels. Uh, we also do a lot with uh, ocean energy. We're sponsoring a bill in California right now to incentivize wave and tidal energy, the way the state has incentivized offshore wind or onshore solar. And we do a lot with what we call blue technologies. So underwater drones, mapping, understanding how the planet works and how it's changing. Bob Ballard, who found the Titanic, keeps his research vessel at uh, Alta Sea when it's not out looking for more Titanics or more underwater sea vents and all the other things he's discovered. Uh, and he builds his drones. He's got a workshop at Alta Sea where he builds his gadgets and then takes them out to the boat and puts them to work. So uh, we've got quite an exciting place that engages the public, engages students, workforce, as I mentioned, uh, for the future of the blue economy and these blue economy businesses. Okay, so you've just thrown about 30 topics for future Rising Tide podcast episodes. Let's let's sort of backtrack and break it down a little. Alta C is called a blue hub or blue economy hub. Really got, got rolling back in 2014 when uh, Geraldine Natz, the former director of the Port of Los Angeles, and, and we've had her on the show and call her the mother of the greening ports movement, really. She got the idea for this. And now, less than a decade later, you just uh, had a big ribbon cutting for an innovation center in this 35-acre complex. So just lay out for people who have no idea what it is what it is and how how it got started and how it's grown. Well, yes. So Geraldine is now the chair of our board of directors. And uh, as you mentioned, she was the head of the port of Los Angeles and very much uh, the first green port director, I think. She now teaches uh, at the engineering school at USC, so works on a lot of these topics from the academic perspective, as well as continuing to help us be that model. And uh, helping us also export that model. We're helping to create an Alta Sea in the port of Kearney, New Jersey, which is the port city of Newark. Uh, we have a board member and a dear friend who uh, has a similar facility, interestingly enough, in the port of Kearney, 100-year-old warehouses, restoring it into this kind of a blue economy, education, workforce, and business hub. And you may soon be hearing from uh, from us here at the port of Richmond, California. You're uh... Happy to happy to do that. And then we've got a similar program we're starting in Rio de Janeiro. So 
the goal here being that, you know, if whatever innovations we come up with or they come up with are not going to become solutions for the climate crisis fast enough if they don't scale. And so one way to make these things scale is to share them quickly with other hubs who can then right size them uh, or adapt them for the local economy or in the case of, say, growing seaweed for local species of seaweed and those types of things, aquaculture and so on. And, uh, and apply some of the lessons learned and share with each other, much like we did in California, where we were policy leaders on these things. But then I went out and shared it with other states and provinces and cities. And now we learn from them. And uh, we are in what's called City Dock Number One. It was literally the first dock in the Port of Los Angeles in, right after 1900. And these uh, facilities were built around 1910, originally to take cargo from the Panama Canal, which was brand new then. So cargo that would come up the West Coast through the Panama Canal. And so we're right in the port of Los Angeles in the town of San Pedro, California. And and it's a, literally a working waterfront. What What's the mix in terms of uh, marine technology and aquaculture and, and clean energy and and also jobs creation, education efforts? Yeah. So we, as I mentioned, our, our focus is aquaculture, whether that's on land or at sea, renewable energy from the ocean and things like hydrogen extraction and uses and then and then blue technologies. And so we work with not only K through 12 school groups that come in and, and have different uh, learning sessions and field trips relevant to their age groups, but we also work with community colleges on certificate programs. So actually starting in September, um, a high school student can graduate high school and go to the Santa Monica College uh, here in Santa Monica and get a 14-month or 16-month course in aquaculture and come out with a certificate and a good job. Uh, the community colleges work directly with the aquaculture industry and others to make sure that these are jobs that will uh, actually be there when the kids graduate. And of course, they can go on to associate degrees or four-year degrees and more academics if they like, but in a relatively short period of time, they can get a good job. And uh, we're working on another certificate program with LA Harbor College on um, hydrogen and electrification of, uh, of the maritime economy. So things like container handlers and ports operations and shipping, a lot of jobs in that sector. And then a third one on underwater robotics. So we're working with our community colleges to turn ideas for the workforce into actual qualifications and jobs. And, and some of those jobs, I mean, California is getting very ambitious on floating offshore wind. So even though you have spar systems with oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico, for offshore wind, the kind of uh, floating systems are, are new and innovative. And you were talking about other innovations that could be coming down the pike, whether it's tidal or, or wave energy. Those are projects there in Alta Sea and, and also companies looking, as you say, to scale up those projects. Yes. And any company in that sector should feel free to reach out to us because we've got space, places to demonstrate these technologies. There's a company on site right now called RCAM, R-C-A-M. They are doing concrete 3D printing. So everyone's probably heard of 3D printing and seen little models being done with plastic. Well, these guys have a giant robot, um, looks like a Terminator uh, refugee, and it's printing infrastructure in, in concrete that will be used to anchor those floating offshore wind terminals to the seafloor. 
But the innovation is not just that they're heavy and they're concrete, but they're giant orbs that are a hundred feet in diameter. So they're very heavy, of course, but they're hollow. And so the, the wind energy can be used to pump the seawater out of this hollow sphere. And when you want the energy, you let the pressure of the ocean push the water back in and the hydraulic pressure spins a turbine, which then creates the energy on shore. So it's underwater energy storage without a battery. So there's a lot of this kind of innovation that will come along with the offshore wind industry that is not just the wind turbines. Uh, there'll be a lot of this kind of infrastructure that is going to be very unique and innovative. Uh, the same thing with our wave technology. There's a company called EcoWave out of Israel that is putting a demonstration project at all to see that our floats you mount on existing jetties and breakwaters. So you don't need to build new infrastructure. You just mount these floats and the floats are connected to the jetty with a, a hinge and an arm. And the arm goes up and down when the float goes up and down because of the waves. And that arm is a hydraulic pump, which pumps air into a cylinder on land. And then when you want the energy, you let the air out of that cylinder into the turbine. It spins the turbine. So once again, you have stored intermittent renewable energy without a battery. So it's uh, it's really innovative. And we now have about 30 other companies that are perfecting different kinds of wave and tidal energy and uh, aggregating them into a trade group, if you will, that has already spoken to our state legislators to try to inform them about the potential for this uh, for the state of California and then beyond. Is it too late? I mean, we're in a crisis now. The climate emergency is here. This is the hottest summer in human history. We're sort of innovating inside the disaster. We are. And, you know, I think that is an important point that we're going to have to start being realistic about not just what are the consequences coming, but perhaps even managed retreat. Um, you know, in was it 2019 or so, I think it was, or 2018, there was Hurricane Harvey down in Houston. And 38 people died, billions of dollars of damage. And some of the city officials were recognizing that the area where the worst damage occurred was areas that used to be wetlands and that the city had dried out and paved and, and built housing and golf courses. And that maybe instead we should let that area go back to being a wetland because it's a buffer then for the rest of the city. And so kind of a managed retreat. Frankly, I think places like Phoenix are going to have to face that in the future when you look at the record heat um, and and how dry Phoenix is. I mean, you don't see a city in the middle of Death Valley and Phoenix temperatures in the summer are resembling those of Death Valley. So, I mean, I think we're starting to see that we're going to have to start thinking about managed retreat, whether it's from areas that are too prone to f wildfires that are exacerbated by climate change or whether it's drought uh, or floods. There was a thing on NPR today I heard about Norfolk, Virginia, that's planning to spend a billion dollars for a seawall. And the critics are pointing out that, yeah, the seawall will prevent catastrophic damage from a, a huge hurricane, but it won't stop the regular flooding that occurs every time there's a, a, a simple rainstorm. And that's as a result of more intense storms and, and higher sea level rising that so forth. And so, sure, 10, 20 years from now, there might be some big storm. It, it, it won't wipe out the city, but the city will be gone anyway because of the constant flooding and the fact people won't be able to live there. So, yes, I think we're going to have to start addressing these things and either decide 
is the real estate we're trying to protect worth protecting, uh, given that there's limited resources? And other areas, are we going to have to have some sort of managed retreat? But, you know, even if uh, if we're taking somewhat of a fatalistic view about the fact that climate change has baked in a lot of these consequences, we still have to live more sustainably on this planet. We still have to feed ourselves more sustainably. And so we can't give up on the transition, on preventing it from getting even worse, and from creating systems that are just more sustainable to, to provide us with our food and shelter and our future. Yeah, we, we have to start thinking about triage, saving what we can while we can, being pragmatic, making California a leader in, in coastal climate adaptation and uh, innovation. I do think that our future is blue. That's the slogan at Alta Sea. Uh, two thirds of the planet being covered by ocean, realizing how much it controls our oxygen, our weather, uh, the fact that things would be so much more worse, so much worse right now if we didn't have an ocean are about a third of our carbon pollution that's gone up into the atmosphere has been absorbed by the ocean, as you well know, David. And and if the ocean wasn't there for that, we'd have so much more carbon in the atmosphere that everything would be on fire at this point. So, uh, but the ocean has reached its absorptive capacity, kind of like if you keep adding sugar to a cup of coffee, at some point it just precipitates out, it can't absorb anymore. So that buffer is gone unless we find ways to deacidify the ocean uh, and try to restore more of the natural ecosystem and protect it. So when you're not working for ocean sustainability, you still uh, enjoying the ocean? You got recreational uh, ocean stuff you're still doing? Absolutely. We had a boat, which uh, uh, we enjoyed during uh, COVID in particular, when it was kind of hard to go recreate anywhere else. I've actually since sold the boat because all to see is all consuming. <laughs> and I have to admit, I have no time to go boating, which is sort of ironic. But uh, but yeah, whenever we can take some time off, we're at the beach. I live in Santa Monica, so I'm fortunate in that regard. And if we do get a little vacation time, we still try to go somewhere where we can snorkel and and discover new uh, new things in the ocean. Terry, appreciate all you've done, what you continue to do for our blue world. And thank you very much for being part of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. It's my pleasure, David, especially to catch up with an old friend and salty advocate like you. And uh, just encourage your readers, if they want to know more, they should just go to the bookstore and get all the books that you've written and all the articles and things you've written, and they will know all they need to know for a sustainable blue future. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy.
Sparky! There you are, good boy, Sparky!